yesterday on the way back from Silverdale, and uh, my wife and I were having a conversation. She has no idea I'm about to share the story, so she's just like, what is going on? And uh, we're talking about Mother's Day, and I, uh, I've, okay, I've got a lot of little attitudes sometimes, all right? I'm going to throw that out there. And so I began asking the question, at what point am I responsible for my kids to make sure they have Mother's Day taken care for? And I'm asking my wife the question. She looks at me, and those of you who know her best, you'll know the attitude and the sass and everything that comes with it. She says, well, you'll keep doing it for as long as you're grateful for the beautiful woman that carried your kids nine months in the womb, (laughs) has mothered your children, all right? And then, yes, all right? (laughs) So men, I don't care how old your kids are, all right? Thank your wife, all right, for being a great mother, all right? So thank you, Loretta, for being a wonderful mother in our home. Uh, uh, well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Corey. I am the youth pastor here. And uh, yeah, today's one of those days where you realize, okay, pastor's on sabbatical. This is either going to be good or we're going to long for him for the next three months. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm, I'm actually really excited to be here this morning and, and share with you. And, uh, and I'm excited to go through the book of Psalms with you this summer. Uh, there'll be, as Tom, Pastor Tom mentioned, there'll be several others here to go through those psalms together. And I, I will tell you up front that about a year ago, I would have told you, you know, if I were to rank the, the biblical books on how much I enjoy them, the psalms really weren't that high of a list, all right? I, I don't like poetry. I'm not that kind of person. And, uh, and so I would go through there, and there, there's some nuggets in there, right? I was, actually, my favorite verse comes out of Psalms 27. Okay, I love it. Life, life theme for me. And, uh, and there were nuggets, but I would kind of get lost in it. And so I'm excited to go through the book of Psalms with you guys as a part of uh, this, this summer. Well, it's not yet summer. <laughs> When is summer coming? Uh, but a part of this series until, uh, until the fall, uh, because, uh, and it, well, you'll find out. All right, you'll find out. It's really good. But before I get into that, kind of along those lines, I want to tell you a, a quick story that just happened a couple weeks ago where I brought my daughter to a local ballet performance. And uh, some of you know it. Some of you were there. Sleeping Beauty was uh, here, played locally. And uh, I, I, this might have been the first ballet that I've been a part of. And, uh, and, and so I didn't know quite what to expect. Uh, my daughter's very excited. She's, this is at least her second. And it, of course, it's Sleeping Beauty. So what uh, young girl would not be excited about that? And I remember we uh, sit down and we are watching the first act. And it is, it is, it, they're doing their thing, right? They're dancing. They're telling the story through dance and movement and song. And, and there's no words, all right? So it's, it's really hitting on this communication is, you know, primarily body language. And I can tell you that I was lost, okay? <laughs> I need the words. And, uh, and so my daughter, she's asking me these questions, and Corey, or no, Dad, uh, when, when is Aurora going to do this? And I actually didn't know Sleeping Beauty's name was Aurora. I, I thought it was always <laughs> Sleeping Beauty. That's what I knew her as. And, uh, but yeah, it makes sense. She has a name. And, uh, and I was like, I, I have no idea. And uh, it actually, the, the first act had ended, and the lights came on, and, and so I started thumbing through the program that they give you in the beginning, and to my surprise and my happiness and joy, uh, they had given a paragraph before each act telling you the characters and what was happening and the storyline, and so I was like, Madison, we need to sit down. <laughs> we need to read this. And so we read it, and, it, and instantly, when we read the first act, it brought instant clarity to what we had just watched, right? And I, I can remember that first act. I picked up nuggets. We could finally, okay, I know what's happening right here. Okay, that's, that's Aurora. Okay, she's asleep. Okay, we, you know, we, we, we gathered it, all right? But when I got the, the overall context, it brought clarity to everything I had just watched. And then, of course, act two and three were much easier to comprehend and enjoy uh, once we knew the overarching story. And I, I tell you that story this morning because what I, what I see in the Psalms is I have a history of cheating, treating the Psalms the same, same way. 
I'll go through the book and I'll, I'll read things and there's nuggets and I understand. Oh, that's, you know, good things. Yes, this is good. I, I, I can grasp that. But when I look at the overall picture, I'm like, okay, I don't know where I am. Somebody give me a roadmap. And, uh, and what I'm hoping to do for you this morning, in just a very sliver in a small way, is help be that paragraph before the act that gives you context, that gives you space to understand what is going on in the book of Psalms, that will lead, one, to your enjoyment of the Psalms, all right, because you'll now have a better understanding of that, but it will actually bring understanding and it will bring you into the presence of Jesus, all right, that it will bring you into closer communion with God and that will move you into action. I love the songs we sang this morning. We start off with, yet not I, but Christ through me. Starts with Christ, and then through the work of Christ coming through us, it it then goes into us making that decision, Lord, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to choose, I'm going to say yes. And then then what happens after that? The gospel of Christ goes out, send me, I speak Jesus. Changes our community. I believe we actually see the same thing in the Psalms, and I hope that's what it does for you over the next 15 or 16 weeks. Um, as so many of you've heard different pastors and preachers get up on, on to the pulpit and say, they all tell you there's so much here, right, that uh, we can't be, even begin to unpack it all in one session. And, th- and this is true. And, and some of the youth will recall uh, last December, I attempted to teach from Genesis to Chronicles uh, the expectation of Jesus in the Old Testament. All right, now, normally when I... Uh, prepare for a lesson for the youth group, I write about nine pages of content. I know that seven to nine pages I I can get through in 30 minutes to 45 minutes. And that particular night, I knew it was going to be a lot of content, so I I cut it down to three pages. I was like, I'm going to make sure I don't go over. And uh, and so I began to teach. And uh, about an hour in, I'm in the zone, and one of the youth leaders are stopping me, Corey, it's, you've taught for an hour. <laughs> I'm not even three quarters of the way through it yet. Parents are showing up for their kids. All right. <laughs> and I was like, are you kidding me? I cannot believe that this is happening. And I, I just say that to say, uh, there's a lot of material today. And if it goes too long, we'll break for communion and hopefully that'll <laughs> hold you to lunch. All right. But uh, no, no, <laughs> <I'm kidding. laughs> I, I, I will try to make it brief and, and just know and understand that we are, I'm attempting just to cover one small part of the overview of Psalms this morning. Um, I, I also want to say this, as I give this information, I, I'm not wanting to put a heavy weight on you. Right? Sometimes we can have information overload and we can begin to think, oh man, I don't want to forget that, don't want to, or how do I apply that? And um, I think oftentimes when we look at scripture, we, we do look at of it as a weight. It's weighty. I mean, it has effect on our lives. It calls us out in real ways. Um, but we'll view it and we'll say, okay, we're going to work through scripture like a weight and we're going to lift and do that work because we know that that is going to build our spiritual muscles and give us strength, and, and that's true, and that's all great. But a lot of us don't like to exercise, okay? I know, it's a guy on the stage, right? And uh, <laughs> what I'd rather do is view Scripture as a feast set before you. Not a weight, but a feast. God has set a table full of every good, every nutritious thing. There's an overabundance of food that will grow you into maturity It'll provide nutrition for your soul, and it'll sustain you for eternity. The Bible says the word of the Lord is eternal. Psalms 1, we'll read this a little more later, but speaks of this. It says, he is like a tree planted beside, this is a person who meditates on the word of God. It says, he is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. So this morning, I would like to start off with prayer and invite you to pray with me for clarity, for understanding that the Word of God, specifically the Psalms over the next 16 or so weeks, would saturate our hearts, bring us closer in communion with God, increase our love and our admiration for our Savior, and move us to give the gospel to our community. So pray with me. Lord, 
Thank you for the opportunity we have to gather and worship here this morning. Lord, singing truths about who you are, what you've done, and what you continue to do. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, this morning we ask that you would just open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to what you would teach us this morning, Lord. That we would spread the gospel of Christ throughout our community because of the worship and the equipping of your saints that happens right here in this building every week. Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I've got some slides to go along with us this morning. That will, there they are. Excellent. Um, and uh, again, they're, they're there to help you stay with me here. Uh, first, though, I want to talk a little bit about the date and the authorship of the Psalms. All right? Uh, the book of Psalms is a collection, and almost you could say a collection of collections uh, of Psalms that were written over quite an extensive period of time. We can look at them and we can see Songs of Moses. All right, this is going to be dating back to 14, 1500 BC and, and continuing on till about the date of the Israelite exile, Babylonian exile, about 586 BC. And most of the Psalms, if you, if, if you are familiar with the Psalms at all, we know that a prominent figure who comes out is the King David. The King David. David, the king. And uh, anyway, he's a prominent figure who comes out, and a majority of the Psalms are written during his lifetime or around the Israelite monarchy. And, uh, and then we see that the Psalms were compiled. Uh, so there are more than 150 Psalms that were written. We know this. We see that uh, uh, King Solomon and David, all the Psalms that were attributed to them are more than 150. But at some point, Somebody came together and compiled these psalms together, and we uh, have great evidence to believe that that was actually happening after the exile, all right? As the Israelites are coming back from exile, these psalms are compiled, and and this is going to give us a clue about what these psalms are about. Um, So, uh, these psalms coming out of the exile, they are going to raise some questions, One of those questions are going to be, what of God's promise to David that his kingly line would reign forever? All right, if you recall back from 1st and 2nd Samuels, 1st and 2nd Kings, uh, the establishment of the kings of Israel. You have King Saul, King David, King Solomon, and then after Solomon, the the uh, kingly line splits to the northern and southern kingdom, and then later the northern kingdom, they, well, they don't all of them don't follow the Lord well, but the northern kingdom gets sent off into exile through the Assyrian, uh, Assyrians, and then later the southern kingdom would be sent off to exile in the Babylonians. And now just picture this with me. When you read the Old Testament, all of Israelite society is based around what God had told them to do, how to worship. All right. There's the meditation of the Torah, the law, the first five books of our Bible. Uh, this was held in high esteem. How to follow the law? How to follow the law of God and to do that well? You have the creation of the temple. What, did, what was the temple? It was God's presence dwelling among His people. You had the priests who would give the sacrifices, who would allow uh, for the atoning of sins so that they could live in the presence of God. You have the different celebrations that would happen that would remind them of the exodus and what God had done in redemption to bring them through. Their whole lives centered around the temple, the priests, uh, following the law, what God, their land, the promised land that God had given them. And then could you imagine how perplexing it must be to be sent off in exile to a land that is no longer their own, their temple destroyed, and asking the question, God, are we still your chosen people? God, how do we follow you? Lord, we used to worship at the temple. How do we worship you now? How do we come into God's presence? And the Psalms are answering this question. They're they're really answering this existential crisis that the people were going through. What do we do now? Are God's promises still good? And so we're going to look at the main idea and to get of the the Psalms to answer those questions. And to do that, we're going to do so by going through the structure of the book of Psalms. All right, I believe the structure of the book of Psalms does that. Um, First, though, what is the first thing that gives us a clue that... 
the, uh, unfortunately, my uh, clicker's not working. Next, <laughs> next slide, please. Thank you. Um, the first clue we have that there is structure to the book of Psalms is actually the structure that is presented in the Hebrew Bible itself. Now, if you did not know, our Old Testament in English is ordered differently. All right? Our books are in a different order than the original Hebrew scriptures. We actually see Jesus talking about the Hebrew scriptures in Luke uh, 24, verse 44, uh, in which he says uh, that he began to... Well, hold on. Let me pull it up for you real quick. <laughs> Luke twenty four forty four. it says, He told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me from the law of Moses... The prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. All right, so Jesus is teaching to this three uh, separation of the Hebrew Testament. So we see the law, the prophets, and the writings. Uh, for those of you familiar with the Old Testament, the last book of our Old Testament is what? Malachi. All right, in the Hebrew Bible, Malachi shows up at the end of the second section of the books. Now, the reason why I bring this up to you, and maybe this was me just kind of nerding out a little bit, because when I learned this, I was like, this is so cool. And it's this, is that there is a theme running through the Old Testament that is even seen in the literary themes of the three books coming together. And I want to show that to you uh, just briefly. All right, so if we look at the end of the Torah, of the law, you'll notice that the, the last verse is there in Deuteronomy 34, verse 10. I'm going to read this for you. It says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, who the Lord knew face to face. All right? So Moses, prominent figure in the Torah and the law, at the very end, there's this expectation. Moses has now died, and there has not been another prophet who has shown up like Moses. Uh, well, interesting enough, if you go to the end of Malachi, which is now the, the end of the prophets, um, let's see what Malachi verse 5 says. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. All right, so Deuteronomy we have a prophet we have not yet seen, like Moses, show up. Malachi, we have the prophet Elijah, who out of all the prophets in the Old Testament, none were like Moses more than Elijah. And we have this anticipation then of a prophet like Moses, like Elijah, who will come and turn the hearts of men. Okay? So this is the first literary scene, an expectation of a Messiah who will change the hearts of men. Now, if we go to the beginning of the prophets, you'll notice Joshua 1, and uh, this is a very familiar verse. It really centers on uh, us uh, meditating on the word of the Lord. So I'm just going to read Joshua 1, verse 8. It says, uh, this is God speaking to Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. All right. Well, is there a corresponding verse in the Hebrew Scriptures that combine these three sections together? It turns out they are, and they are Psalms 1 and 2. All right. So if you would, go ahead and turn to Psalms 1 with me. Remember, the, the Scripture here to Joshua was to meditate on the Lord that it will bring success Let's read the first three verses of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of, seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. All right, so I hope you're seeing this theme, right? The seams. You have one, there's a prophet, a Messiah coming who is going to change the hearts of men. And secondly, you have this, the importance of God's instruction, of God's law that'll make us wise and bring us spiritual blessing. 
So clue number one, is there structure to Psalms? Well, I think we, we get our first clue from actually the structure of the Hebrew Scriptures themselves. The fact that Psalms 1 and 2 is used as an integral part to combine the Hebrew Bible together, the answer is yes. But do we have anything else that points to the structure of Psalms? Next slide, please. Uh, as it turns out, we do. Uh, to do this and, and, and see this, we need to actually turn to the last five Psalms in our Bible. All right, so go ahead and turn to Psalm 146. And as I read these verses, these verses will be up on the screen as well. But we're going to be looking at the last five Psalms and looking at verse one and their last verse of each Psalm to see if there's anything corresponding. Psalms 146, verse one says... Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. All right, some of your uh, translations might say hallelujah as the first uh, word, and that's the Hebrew. Hallelujah, praise Yah, or Yah, Yahweh, praise the Lord. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. And then verse 10, the end of Psalm 146 says, The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. All right, well, that's interesting. So let's go to Psalms 147, verse 1. Here we again, we see, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. Then down to verse 20. He has not dealt with us, he has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. All right, so once again, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Uh, Psalms 148, verse 1. Guess how it starts? You guys are going to catch on, all right? If not by this one, at least by the last. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. And then verse 14. He has raised up a horn for his people. All right, a horn. The, it's, the, it's the bullhorn that they raise in victory in battle. This is, this is a sign of the Messiah coming. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. Psalm 149. One. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the, of the godly. Verse 9. To execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. And then Psalm 150, verse 1, as you have guessed it, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Verse 6, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. What a cool way to end the book of Psalms. But what it does for us is it shows us in a five-part structure, five-psalm structure, that there is structure in the book of Psalms. Now, um, the, the fact that there are five psalms, would you, does any other book in the Bible or books of the Bible, does the five have significance to? The answer is yes. As we've already talked to, the Torah, all right? The book of Moses or books of Moses contain five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, there, there are five. Five has an interesting significance in the book of Psalms. Uh, and we see it here at the end. Well, is there any other structure beyond that? In the book of Psalms. Guess what? Yes, there is. Turns out there is. All right, uh, my next slide to you, you see that I have broken up uh, the book of Psalms into five areas. In fact, in my Bible, above Psalm 1, it says book 1. All right, as I imagine many of your Bibles do as well. Um, you may have above Psalm 42, book 2. Um, now, you should know that it's, it's interesting to note in the original Hebrew scriptures, it does not say book one, book two, book three, book four, book five. This is an editorial note done for us uh, because, as it turns out, like Psalms 146 through 150, there is also an ending to each one of these books that correspond with each other. And so if, uh, if you would bear with me, I'd like to read through those so that you can see that as well. Uh, the first book ends in Psalm 41. 
Psalms 41, 13. Let me read this for you. It says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. All right, let's turn to Psalm 72, verses 18 through 19. Verse 18 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. You guys are going to be memorizing parts of the Psalms. You never, you're like, I've got this. All right? Book three. Book three ends Psalms 89. And verse 52 What does it say? It says, blessed be the Lord forever, amen and amen. Then we have book four, which ends uh, Psalms 106, verse 48. I know, there's there's a lot of hand exercise today, okay? I understand, thanks. Psalms 106, 48 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. And of course, the last five psalms of the last five book, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. All right, so what have we established with all this turn, this, this turn paging and looking at these different psalms? What we have established is that somebody has intentionally brought order, and structure to the book of Psalms, all right? And, 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 and not just, not just uh, you know, on some crazy account, hey, we're just going to break it up into five Psalms. But they wanted to actually mimic the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, if you will. And, and as I already say, the, the Torah, the, the first five books, they're really associated with Moses. You see Jesus calling them the law of Moses, or the books of Moses, excuse me. And this, in, a, in essence, becomes the Torah, if you will, of David. Where the first book, the first Torah, the first set of books, taught us about God's laws, and it also taught us about God's story, Right? created mankind, created the earth. Mankind fell into sin, and yet God pursued mankind to have a relationship with him. The, the, the beautiful story that unfolds, the beautiful yet messy, and at times awful story of mankind. And what this, if that's what this, the books of Moses do, what the books of David do here, the Psalms, is it teaches us to delight in God's law, and to delight in his story. All right? So, what I want to do then with this, establishing that there is a structure, and that through that structure, uh, the, the compiler of the Psalms is actually trying to communicate something to us, I want to look at some of the main themes and ideas that show up in every one of those books to get the overarching, overarching message, what is the book of Psalms trying to tell us? All right. So, book one. Excellent. Book one, Psalms one through forty-one. I, I really, this really, book one is really Psalms three, Psalm three through forty-one, because Psalm one and two not only connect the Psalms to the rest of the Old Testament, but set up the themes for the entire Psalter. Uh, but for our, make it easy, one through forty-one. Uh, what does book one focus on? You notice that the the first book of the Psalms focuses on David's story of persecution. All right, his need for deliverance, his own journey of forgiveness and restoration. And then what, what the Psalms do is they use these stories of David for others who would find their story in a similar circumstance to teach us how do we pursue the Lord in the middle of this. It really answers the question, how do we cry out to God when our lived experience seems contrary to the beliefs that we hold? Book one gives us the language and the model of how to cry out to God in those times. But at the same time, you'll notice sprinkled throughout the first book, things to put our hope in. Book one is primarily a, a, a Psalms of David of lament. 
all right? Lament. Uh, that means you're going to read through the first book and you'll be like, wow, that is not as uplifting as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> All right, these were sad. This, this is real reflections of a man who's trying to pursue the Lord and yet lives in a wicked and godless society. In fact, I think as we pursue uh, and read through the Psalms, we begin to also feel the tension. What does it mean to try to live righteously in a, in a broken, sinful world? And it produces songs of lament. But you'll notice sprinkled through there are psalms that refocus our eyes on God's salvation, on God's hope. This is what book one does. Book one, um, as I said already, Psalm 1 and 2 not only connect the psalms to the rest of the scriptures, but they really set up the themes for the entire Psalter. All right, what are those two themes? One, that it's important to meditate on the word of the Lord. It brings spiritual blessing, brings wisdom, It brings growth. And secondly, in Psalms 2, we see this expectation of a messianic king. I want to look at Psalms 2 real quick. If you would turn right back to Psalms 2 so we can see this. This is pretty amazing to me because it's right from the get-go. Psalms 2, and I'm going to jump around with some of these verses here. Verse 1, it says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. You'll notice anointed is capitalized if you're using the ESV there. Verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Once again, king is capitalized. Verse 8, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Verse 12, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is talking about Jesus. And what's interesting here, at the end, in verse 12, Psalm 1 says, blessed is the person who does what? Meditates daily on the word of the Lord. And Psalms 2 said, blessed is who? The one who takes refuge in him. We have the expectation of a Messiah, and we have the, uh, the meditation of Scripture that brings us wisdom and spiritual blessing that point us to him. So that's book one. Book two and three are pretty interesting, all right? They are actually arranged in a symmetrical fashion. Book two consists of Psalms 42 through 72, and book three consists of 73 through 89. And, and I'm just going to say, if you don't know this information, when I saw this, my mind was blown. I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Why did nobody ever teach me this? All right? I mean, hopefully not, not because it's boring, but what I hope you see here is God in his wisdom said, hey, I want you to know that these are intentional. And that you can map this out. And so we look at book two and book three, and you can actually look and you can see how these psalms correspond with each other. In fact, psalms, uh, the Korah psalms, the psalms, sons of Korah, uh, you'll see like Psalms 42 directly correspond with Psalm 84 in theme and content and the words being used. It's pretty amazing. And then you have the, the Asaph psalms. They correspond to each other. And then right at the center, you have this Davidic collection. All right, this is actually called a, a chiastic structure. We're not going to go through that today, but the Psalms make a lot of use of chiasm in, to get at a point. Um, but it's, it's super cool. So you have the Chorus Psalms. Uh, the Chorus Psalms, when you take them together, what they're communicating is that they long for God's divine presence. Remember, the temple has been destroyed. They lament over Israel's sins, and they celebrate God's royal power and the establishment of messianic hope. The Asaph Psalms, they reflect on the crisis that the exile had caused the Israelites. All right, as, as we already established, they, they were asking the question, how do we worship the Lord when the temple's destroyed? How do we repent? How do we turn to him? What do we do when we are no longer in the promised land? We no longer have the temple or the priests. And if you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, 
you will see as the Israelites return from exile, they're really wrestling with it. They're wrestling and they're trying to, to form their identity. They're trying to get back at what does it mean to follow the Lord. And so you see them trying to rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls, and try to reestablish the law of God in the land. Then you get to the Davidic Psalms, right there in the middle. And what's so fascinating here is that the Psalm 51 starts off with a story of David sinning with Bathsheba. Right? Prior to this, you have some of the biggest... David is on uh, the throne, right? The best things about David are on display. And then he sins with Bathsheba. And everything falls apart. It leads to divine judgment. But it also has a story of repentance that leads to restoration. Can you imagine how important this psalm is for the Israelites who have been exiled because of their sin? And they need a story of repentance and redemption that God is still going to do something in their lives. The two books then, book two and three, are asking this question, what is the future hope? Are the promises of God still applicable considering the exile? And yet it still encourages the reader to continue to meditate and dwell on the Torah while looking forward to the day that God will rule over the nations. Uh, Book three ends with this unanswered question. Psalm 89, 46 says, How long, Lord, will you hide forever? Will your anger keep burning like a fire? It's significant then that book four starts off with a psalm from Moses. The first psalm in book four, it's the only psalm attributed, directly attributed to Moses. And it actually recalls Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai, and God has given Moses the Ten Commandments. It's this big holy moment. It's like a, it's like a marriage festival going on where God is saying, hey, I'm going to be your people and you're going to be, or no, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. I'm going to bless you. And they, Moses comes off the mountain and what is he greeted by? The golden calf. And of course we know Moses' reaction, but we also see God's reaction. God's ready to burn everybody. He is not happy. And yet Moses comes before the Lord and he intercedes on behalf of the Israelite people, asking God for compassion. And so at the end of book three, as you're reading through there, what you're going to notice is that in book three, you're going to see the fall of the kingdom, of the Israelite kingdom, the kings and the monarchy. There's going to be a lot of lament, a lot of sorrow over uh, just Israel as a nation falling apart. And then they're asking this question, Lord, are you going to have mercy on us? Are you going to have compassion on us? And here we have Moses interceding. Book 4 then continues, Psalms 91 and 92, with God promising vindication for those who have remained faithful to him. And it also expresses God as the supreme king. I love this. When you get to Psalms 93 through 99 to 100, it's all God reigns, right? So at the end of book 3, the monarchy's dead. There are no more kings of Israel. What is the Israelites going to do? Guys, don't worry. God has always been your king. He has been forever. And Psalms 93 through 100 express that vividly. And then we get a picture in Psalms 103 that paint God as the forgiving God, therefore giving hope to those returning from exile. Book 5, it turns out, is also put together in a symmetrical pattern. With the longest psalm, Psalm 119, at its center. I'm telling you, this is cool too, all right? This, okay. There is enough rabbit holes to chase, all right? Literally for a lifetime. And I think it's meant that way. But we have this, again, chiastic structure of the book five. Psalms 119 at the center Psalms 119 specifically focusing on, it's an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet, but, but that really explores, again, the idea of blessed is the person who meditates on the law. 
It's celebrating God's instruction and the, and the spiritual blessing that comes from meditating on it. We see Psalms 107 and 110 correspond with 138 and 145. All right, the first group retells Israel's history, confirms that God will show mercy to those who repent. God is a forgiving God. 138 through 145 records David petitioning the Lord for rescue and includes hope, uh, focusing really on the Davidic covenant, that God made promises to David that he would establish his kingdom forever. And then finally, we come back to our five psalm conclusion there, praising God because he's ruler over all creation and he has raised up a king to deliver. Psalm 113 through 118, these are liturgical psalms that pick up themes from the Exodus, all right, that, that God uh, delivered his people when his people could not do anything on their own. What's interesting is that when you get to Psalm 120 through 136, these are also liturgical psalms, and they were written to be sung by the Israelites on their return, <laughs> on their return from the exile. This becomes their new exodus, I don't know if I would have picked that to narrate my talk, but, as you know, the background music, that's all right. And then again, Psalms 19 is going to meditate there in the middle on the teaching of the Torah. All right. So what is the main idea? All right. Why did we do all this work? What is the main idea? I would submit to you that at least, just in case I missed something, all right, that at least the main idea of the book of Psalms is that a future Messiah will establish his kingdom, will reign over all the nations, and bring final justice to sinful creation. God's promises are good. And in the meantime, we are to meditate and obey the word of the Lord, for it gives wisdom that leads to salvation. We actually see Paul exhort Timothy in something very similar. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 15. Paul says this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. See that? We have the meditation of the word of Scripture that makes us wise unto salvation through the Messiah that is Jesus. All right. Again, I know that felt like a lot of work. What I want to show you, though, is that every psalm is deliberately placed. We, the, the most common view of the book of Psalms is that it's a hymn book. And in some ways it is, right? It's a, it's a collection of songs and prayers to be used by God's people in worship of him. But unlike a hymn book, I can't just take Amazing Grace and stick it to the end, right? We can't take Psalms 100 and stick it as the first psalm or vice versa. Actually, the Psalms were meant to be read from beginning to end. They, they were written to communicate a thought. It is interesting that when you start in the beginning of the Psalms, and you wouldn't get this unless you read it from the beginning to end, you would not see this, that in the beginning you'll primarily have songs of lament with songs of praise sprinkled in. But by the time you get to the end of the book, you primarily have songs of praise with songs of lament sprinkled in. It moves our direction from lament to praise. So why should the Christian read the Psalms? I have three quick points. First point is this. The Psalms teach us how to pray and gives us the language to do so. The book of Psalms teaches the modern reader how to relate to God with very real and emotional language. This is great for people like me, all right? Because I don't have emotional language in my vocabulary. <laughs> maybe, maybe you're like me, all right? Men, we don't talk about our feelings, all right? But here we have the Psalms, especially David, expressing deep hurt, deep praise in a very emotional way. It's not hard to find a Psalm for just about any occasion, a person who is suffering various difficulties may find that there are psalms of lament that help give you a voice to God. 
to express the hard time. And then at the same time, some of those psalms will reorient that person's suffering, suffering to the hope they have in Christ. Or maybe, maybe you're someone who has had a fierce injustice done to you. Maybe you'll find that the language that's communicated in what we would call the imprecatory psalms, all right? Look those up. Those are intense. We see David asking the Lord to break the teeth of his enemies. It's in there. God can handle our anger. There are psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of praise, psalms of hope, all to show the incredible scope that we have to emotionally relate to God. We sometimes feel distant from God, yet the psalmist shows us that he is indeed close. When you think for a moment about the fact that a lot of these psalms were put together and sung when the temple was destroyed, and that was the place they met with God, the psalms began to be how they met with God. It became, the, it became their metaphorical temple. Believers today, we know that the scripture teaches the Holy Spirit indwells within us. We are the temple of the Lord. And these psalms give us a voice on how to worship God. Now here's a, here's a truth that I've learned in my life when I, when I think about this. If we don't take these emotions to the Lord, as he intended, we will undoubtedly take those emotions and how to cope with those emotions somewhere else. And a lot of times that will lead us to more sin and more destruction in our lives. How common is it of a picture of someone trying to escape life's problems by looking at the bottom of a bottle? I write movies on this stuff. State of Washington, how common is it for somebody to lose their emotions in picking up another joint? We've even heard the phrase, oh, eat your emotions. The truth is the Lord invites us to bring all of this to him. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary, heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. So the Psalms teach us how to pray, how to emote, and gives us the language to do so. Second point, the Psalms tell the story of sin and God's redeeming power. All right, as I already established, that when you look at the Psalms from 40,000 feet above, they move from songs of lament to songs of praise and God's sovereign rule over all creation. The beautiful thing about this is that we find our stories here too. In reading the stories of those who were before us and in the past, we see that God was faithful, he continues to be faithful, and he will be faithful to all of his promises. So the Psalms tell the story of sin and God's redeeming power. My last point, the Psalms teach us about Jesus. Blow anybody's mind there? Listen, it blew mine. All right. Jesus quotes from the book of Psalms more than any other book. And when he quotes from the book of Psalms, he's interpreting the Psalms as himself, as the fulfillment of, of those psalms. So if we look at Luke 24:44 again, where Jesus is saying to the disciples, "These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me, that is Jesus, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled." So I want to encourage you, we don't study the psalms not for just personal therapy. All right, that's good. Not, not for something great to write on a sympathy card, but because the prayers and the psalms presented in the book bring us into the presence of Jesus, our Savior and our King. We're going to go into a time of communion this morning. I want to invite the band back up. And the psalmist the psalmist that we already saw wrote of a horn of salvation, referring to the future Messiah who would rule the nations. 
We know today that promised Messiah, that future Messiah that they longed for, is realized in the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus is our promised King and our Savior. He is the one who will bring final justice to the nations. He forgives mankind of their sin and he rules forever. But like the Israelites who awaited the Messiah, we await his second coming. We come together then to remember his life, his death, and his resurrection, which he defeated our sin and offers us a restored relationship with God and an eternal future with him. Scripture says that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's give thanks. Lord Jesus, we are reminded of uh, even how David presents this world, Lord, broken. And we find ourselves in our own sin, struggling, Lord, crying out for help. And Lord, you heard that cry, and you came down from heaven, and you offered yourself as a sacrifice, Lord. Not only paying for our sins, but forgiving us of those sins. And so Lord, right now we just want to say thank you and remember the sacrifice of that day on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. Take and eat. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, take and drink. Lord, once again, we just give you thanks for your word. Lord, that you've revealed your plan from the beginning. Lord, you've revealed that you were never going to leave us alone, but you had an established plan that we would actually live in a relationship with you, Lord. It would bring glory to you. Lord, we give you thanks for the Psalms, Lord, that are meant to direct our focus on you. Lord, the one who gives us spiritual blessing and wisdom for this life and the next. Lord, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.